can't believe how long ago it was, dear I can still remember how you felt I'm still getting over that you're not here And if you were, you'd be someone else I took it for granted when you were here with me I didn't think you'd ever let me go I don't know if you remember what we used to be But I've got something that I need to know When are we gonna talk about it? When are we gonna come together and clean up what we left? Do you wanna talk about it? Never lets me rest. Can't believe how long ago it was, dear. Somehow there's a vacuum in my mind. Tell me how it felt when we were both here, and how it felt to leave it all behind. Talk about it Hello, welcome to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine-based nonprofit organization Finding Our Voices, which is survivors of domestic abuse, including me, standing proud and speaking loud. It's almost like a protective hug. Like I've got you, don't worry. Like turned into a, you're not going anywhere. That was one thing to throw things at me. It was one thing to call names, but you like, he physically broke a body part. My guest today is Tiffany. Welcome Tiffany. Thank you, Tiffany, for talking with me today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. So tell me again how you heard about Finding Our Voices. So actually, it was one of the banners in the local market. Have you talked publicly about your experience? Never. Not once. And why have you decided to do that? Mostly, I just think there's not a ton of awareness out there, period. But particularly for people in the LGBTQ plus community, um, when I was, I had to deal with three different police departments during um, you know, the process of getting a restraining order and keeping myself and my son safe. It was fascinating. There was one officer when I was giving my statement and the first time I said she, he kind of chuckled and he said, you mean you can't just fight her off? Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. So we'll go to the beginning. Yeah. And so can you tell me where, bring me back to how you met, what you were, what your life was like at the time and how this person presented themselves to you and how long ago this was? Yeah. So um, I met her in the beginning to mid 2014. Um, and 
you know, in the very beginning, um, you know, I was a, I had been fairly recently uh, divorced. Um, and so my, a man, yeah. And so I was 34, I think. Yeah. And, um, so my ex-husband and I had, you know, custody of our son, both, you know, we shared custody. And so we met and, um, it was my first relationship with a woman. And I think that for, for me, and I've heard this from other women too, that, you know, begin their first like lesbian relationship. It was very affirming because I was like, oh yes, I'm supposed to be with a woman, you know, but in addition to sort of that phenomenon happening, she was extremely attentive. Um, she was complimentary. She was charming. Uh, she was hilarious. She, when it came time for her to meet my son, she was great with him. You know, it felt organic. It felt right. It felt good. And, you know, but she, she presented herself. What I later found out was, you know, completely false. Everything um, that you thought about her was wrong. Everything that she presented herself. There's usually a power imbalance. Was was there a power imbalance here? What was it? So the power imbalance is really interesting. The power imbalance, it didn't actually exist, but I thought it existed. She presented herself, and not that this mattered to me. This did not matter to me. I would not have been, I would have chosen to date her anyway. She presented herself as um, pretty wealthy. She presented herself as a pre-med student or a medical student. Um, It was sort of unclear, you know, what that was. She presented herself as somebody who had a lot of means um, with their their family. And the only reason that's relevant, so this, this would not have mattered to me one bit. The only reason it was relevant was because it was, you know, she would do this, like, see how well I can take care of you. See how well, you know, your son is never going to want um, anything. It quickly began, you know, this sort of perceived power imbalance because these are not things that I had. Um, you know, Were you I, struggling at the time? Um, yeah, because, you know, we had gone from, um, you know, uh, my son and I, he was supported, you know, financially in terms of like health insurance and things like that, you know, with, you know, his, his dad, but I was having to work overtime and I was having to, you know, just work a lot to mm-hmm. give him, you know, what he needed, um, sort of on my end, mm-hmm. you know? So it, it was, you know, my, my income had, or the, the household income had decreased by like 50%. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was okay. I could do it, but I had to work really hard. Um, I had to work on weekends and I had to work overnights. That, that reminds me of where I was when I met my ex because... I was a reporter, you know, living in San Francisco. I had a car. I had my apartment, but it was it was a struggle. Like right. I was I was making eleven thousand dollars a year, and I was it was it was hard. I was working really really hard, and I didn't have much money. And so this guy comes around, and you know, the same thing. Like I'm going to take care of you, and you know, and it's just like, like to take a breath. You know, like wow, this would be you know, there's something nice about that. That's exactly what it was. It was why I can take a breath. You know, um, you know, I didn't have like a large nest egg, you know, I was one emergency away from not being able to afford things. In addition to, this is my first lesbian relationship, and I had always sort of had these, you know, these thoughts, maybe I'm supposed to be with a woman, maybe I'm supposed to be with a woman. And she just said things all the time to make me feel good, you know, you're beautiful. Oh, yes. And she, I think that she caught on really quickly, like it was all the right things. And she 
was so attentive to my son. And, you know, my son who had fairly recently, you know, began to have two homes and all of these things, you know, that are, are sad for a child. She made him laugh and she made him laugh like I wasn't able to make him laugh. And so that was sort of, as you know, like the minute somebody's kind to your kid, you know, you just... Don't you think it's like they almost have an instinct for what you're hungry for? And that's what they give you. Yeah. They they feed you all of the right things. Yeah. And, you know, they just make you... I just fell in love so fast. Mm -hmm. And did it it move quickly? Yeah, it did. It moved quickly. Um, And was that in part on on her? Moving along quickly? I had no idea. She made in her apartment, she made a bedroom for my son. And early on, had early on. Yeah, yeah, pretty early on. Um, and you know, had just painted it and had done all of these things. And I, I wasn't ready to to do this quite yet. And you know, she would do these things like become ultra available. I had a diabetic dog at the time who was sort of like my soulmate dog. So it's really like I had two children and she would just make herself really available and just indispensable, Mm. you know? And as somebody who was just trying to figure out how it was all going to work, it was, it was great. What did your friends and family think about her? Were there any people that did not get a good feeling? My dad, you know, it was really interesting. So one of the things that was challenging is I wasn't ready to come out yet. I wasn't ready. You know, my family and everybody knew me as a straight person. And so not only did I drop this bomb on them, you know, just months before, you know, hey, I'm getting a divorce. This person who I'd been with since I was 17 years old, now we're getting a divorce. By the way, um, was he a good person? He's a great person. There's no he, he's there. a great, none, yeah. none whatsoever. He's, he's a great person. He's a great dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a great friend. And so there, yeah, so he noticed right away and his family noticed right away. They couldn't stand her. Really? Right. Like it was instant. And oh, but I'm, I, this is interesting because do you think that you might have interpreted that as they're hostile to you mm-hmm. in a lesbian relationship? I think that they were hostile to me. I, I thought at you the thought. time I interpreted it very much interpreted it as they're hostile to me for having a, a, a romantic relationship with a woman. They are hostile to me for you know my part in this divorce. You know, I didn't try hard enough. And, you know, my ex-husband and I, you know, we got a divorce and then we went to coffee. You know, we went from the courthouse to the coffee shop. You know, we were able to, to do things well. And then all of a sudden we weren't, mm-hmm. you know, and everything was a battle. And I didn't Wait, was it, it was a battle because of the relationship you were in now? The relationship that I was in, yeah. It was it was a battle, but it was... She would do things, and I didn't realize, you know, she would push... I wasn't ready to start bringing her to, like, my son's baseball games and basketball games and school events. And she would do things, you know, like, start to make me feel really guilty. So, just to get this clear, so you were saying that when it was just you, and then, you know, everything was very smooth, but then she enters the picture, and everything becomes... It, it all of a sudden is rancorous. Yes. She would act provocatively at these events, but she would do it just under the radar. So I didn't see it. You know, she would rub my shoulders and look over at them at a game or just glare or just stare too long in a menacing manner and do all of these things in this sort of subtle nature. But, you know, it was, 
meant to kind of get a rise out of them and it worked. And when we had to go to an event and my son's really active, so they were constant, my stomach would just come in knots. And then did you almost attach yourself more to her because you were being separated from It's almost like you were there. Yeah. And so (laughs) I I attached myself completely more. I, I I totally and I would do these things where I would you know, think, gosh, you know, I'm so lucky I have her. She has my back. She, you know, I never saw this. Like, these people hate me now. And, you know, they were going to hate me anyway. Thank goodness I... And she was probably adding to it as far as putting them down and saying things about them, right? Yeah, yeah. We would go home and she said, did you see this? And, you know, his mother did this to me. And it's because I'm a woman. It's because... They don't like that you're a lesbian. You know, they're being homophobic right now. Mm -hmm. And I knew better. I knew better than that, but I allowed myself to believe it. And then, of course, I almost became sort of self-righteous about it. You know, you're not going to tell me. So tell me about the red flags. Yeah. So um, the red flags began relatively quickly. Um, I wasn't out yet at work. You know, I worked in um, a, a hospital and I... Um, had worked there for 15 plus years. Um, I started there very young and I wasn't out yet. And she would call my office that I shared with two other people. She would call my office incessantly, my office line. And so of course I'd have to answer it. Why wasn't she calling your cell phone? Um, because she knew I wouldn't answer my cell phone at work. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm somebody that I'd never liked personal calls at work. When I'm at work, I'm at work. And so it would just, it would irritate me and it would it was unprofessional and I shared an office so people would you know hear and so when I would act annoyed or um I didn't want people to know it was her calling because I wasn't out and also the whole idea was that um since I had worked there a really long time she was going to get another job and I was going to stay um there and so she you know would be really angry when I would hang up the phone or say you know, something really just sort of, you know, ambiguous, like, okay, thanks, bye, you know, and she'd get really upset. Um, There were other things like, you know, when we began to share expenses, you know, rent or things like that. She, you know, remember, she presented herself as having some rights. She wouldn't have money for things or she wouldn't have access to her bank account and so I would cover it but remember I you know I so didn't have a lot of money I would cover for her and she'd say oh you know I'll get you back next month or like I'll what pay kind the of rent, you, rent. She, wouldn't pay, she wouldn't pay her part of rent no she would not pay her part of the rent I ended up having to put her on my cell phone plan well I suppose I didn't have to but she just you know, talked about how it would be easier and how, you know, at some point our finances would be merged and that would only be beneficial to me. So not only did I put her on my cell phone plan, but then she then wanted a new phone. And, you know, it was such, I remember like pausing and thinking, okay, you read about things like this. And really what it turned out to be is that she hadn't paid her cell phone bill in months and, you know, it was getting shut off. I'm assuming it just got worse and worse. It did. So yeah, I would just pay for all of these things and like the rent and, you know, the food. But then she would do things like she would go to work and a a coworker of mine, you know, that 
I, I worked with for years said to me, you know, it's just so awful that your son's dad isn't paying for his basketball and for school and things. And I was, I remember saying to her, he pays 50% and I pay 50% and it's always been that way. And he's always paid and little things like that. But she was telling people that we worked with that she, not me even, <laughs> that she was paying for it. Did you feel like you loved her? Yeah. Yep. I did. I was head over heels in love with her. I, you know, and I now realized that I think it was just, as I said before, I just knew that I was like, this was my first lesbian relationship and I was in fact a lesbian. And I think that that was sort of the, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, I'm supposed to be with a woman, but I, I wasn't able to, you know, extrapolate or to sort of differentiate that this is not the woman I was supposed to be with, but you know, um, and you know, there were times that even, even then at this point, she, you know, where I was starting to see those red flags, she was so incredibly flattering to me and just would talk about, gosh, you know, I've never met such a great mother and child combo and you know, like you're just everything and you're beautiful and your son is amazing. A lot of times they start with flattering you and, and, and then yeah. they you down. Yeah. So I remember, you know, it, it sort of began, um, you know, some of the put downs, they would start. I remember the day it really, really began. I think it subtly began before, like where she would put these messages like, oh, well, you know, um, you never finished this college degree that I was in, you know, you didn't do this. And, you know, even though you're, um, what did she say to me? Even though you're not scholarly, you know, at least you make up for it with, you know, just these little things. Subtle put downs. Yes. They were very subtle. And then she would always like sandwich it in between like these compliments, you know, and, part of me just thought like, oh, well, you know, she's right. You know, I'm I, like, school didn't come easy to me. And then she would do things. It, a lot of it centered around um, my ex-husband. You know, we had a pretty decent co-parenting relationship and we would somehow, you know, we would sometimes share like cute photos that we each got of our kid and, you know, like funny stories, you know, like, our son is amazing. And, you know, there's, there's want to share those things with, you know, the other parent. And so we would like just share cute little anecdotes or something throughout the day. And she just, or throughout the week, it wasn't even daily. And she just became unglued with that. This is not about hiccup. And this is not about drop off or bills or school. Like you don't need to be sharing this. I got to the point where she would be so hostile around these text messages or these communications that I would not check my phone throughout the day. Or if I saw that my son's dad was texting, even when he was with him, you know, and I'd always be worried that there was an emergency or they needed something. But um, I, I was hesitant to check because if, you know, she would be right there. It's like his name would come across my phone. Is it, is it all about, um, keeping the peace, avoiding an argument at any cost. Is that what started to happen? Always. 
So I would, you know, not check text messages or communications. I would not send them, you know, and, you know, when my son was with me, I would often prior like take photos or videos or share little quotes that he would do. That's just something that we would do for one another. And I would stop because anytime I did that, I, I know it was going to, you know, she was always right there. You know, and, and, and tell me, tell me about how you were saying that. What would happen when you were trying to keep the peace? So what happened when she would get upset? You said in the beginning it yeah. was subtle, and then what, what ended up happening? So then, you know, it sort of progressed to she would do things like slam around, or would say things like, "If you actually cared about me, and you actually cared about our relationship, um, you wouldn't have these communications," um, and. You know, and I would just sort of, you know, again, just keep the peace and I would stop. I wouldn't check my phone. I would all of all of these things just to just to keep her happy. And um, it then would progress to, you know, she would begin to slam things around or she would go in our bedroom and, you know, just talk to me like she would say something really nasty to me. You know, sometimes it would be you know, this is why you don't even know how to be in a relationship or, you know, you really just want to get back with this person, don't you? Um, and she would say these things and then go in the bedroom and like slam the door. And, you know, I would try to, you know, say something like, you know, hey, can we, can we talk about this? Can we, and she would always say no. And then she starts sending me like just nasty text messages from the bedroom and just, you're no good. Um, I can't trust you, all of these things. And that would progress actually to her doing things like sending her ex-girlfriend messages and then screenshotting them and sending them to me and saying, you know, we can, I can do this too. <laughs> you know, and I was trying to say, so this is not the same thing. Like you don't share a child with this person. You don't have to talk to this person. And this poor woman, like you're just using her to like make me upset. Like this is, this is really bad. And tell me about the slamming things. Was that in intimidating to you? It was extremely intimidating to me. Um, it was, it scared me. It also put me in a position where she had a very anxious dog and I had a dog who was going blind. And so they would both be, they would both be scared and I would be scared and I would have to like try to comfort both dogs. And then she would do things like, see, you only care about them. You don't care about me. Um, you know, but it was, it was very scary to me. I still, to this day, you know, I had to, I went through, through therapy because things like loud noises would make my heart race and my breathing would get funny. And it would just put me in like, I would have to like constantly tell myself like, Tiffany, you're okay. Like you're not in this situation anymore, but it just progressively got worse. Like the slamming, if I had known then that it was only going to get worse than that, even, I think maybe I would have perhaps found the strength to leave at that point. Um, because the slamming progressed to, you know, we rented an apartment and she threw something against the sink and the sink was like a porcelain farmer's sink and it chipped the porcelain. So, you know, we had to pay for that because that's, you know, and it would do things like, you know, she'd like punch a wall or, you know, all of these things. And, 
eventually that would lead to shoving me against the wall and, and stuff like that. What do you think about, like what I say is pretty much blanket statement, like they don't change and it only gets worse. Like would you That's exactly that? it. Yeah, I tried so hard to, to get her to change and I made excuses for it. You know, around this time she drunkenly tripped over something and broke her nose. And, you know, then that led to, you know, she needed medication to manage her pain and all of these things. And so I had convinced myself that, you know, the medication, because it got, you know, at that point, she would start locking me out of the house and shoving me and putting her hands like around my like chest and, and stuff like that. And, you know, she, she locked me out of the house when I didn't have my shoes on and and stuff like that and I would I convinced myself that it was the medication that made her do that and to some degree it may have been true but she wouldn't stop taking the medication and so yeah they only get worse and we would I would say things like you know hey like okay so now it was tangible stuff it wasn't just like you know nasty comments here and there it was tangible like you put your hands on me you know, you scared the dog so badly that he defecated on the floor, you know, and she would say, yep, it's the medication. It's, it's the medication, you know, it's, it's this. And so I called her doctor and I said, you know, I think she's allergic to this. It makes her aggressive. And so they stopped prescribing it. And, you know, that also led to like, who do you think you are? <laughs> and did she get better now that they stopped? prescribing it yeah. no of course not um then it was I'm in so much pain and I can't get any relief because you called my doctor and you did these things and how dare you oh one more thing I'm wondering if this is also something you experienced that like she wouldn't let it I, like this is what a lot of these guys do in my ex too like something like that like they just won't let it go like you'll hear about it forever did that happen too that you kept hearing about the fact that you called the doctor I heard about this even after I left years, yeah. like, like years later. Yeah. Yeah. I was in pain and you denied me pain medication. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you didn't say like, I didn't deny you this. I called and I said, you know, like, and let's not forget, I called because you gave me permission to call, you know, yeah. like, let's not forget that they won't talk to me without That's <laughs> you know, some sort of permission. Um, and and yeah, and it was, I was in pain. I was in so much pain. So then the abuse was not because of the pain medication. It was because of the level of pain she was in, right? So it just was always something. And so uh, so in the beginning, what would you say percentage-wise of the times that she would be in a snit? And then toward the end, what was the percentage-wise when it was not good? You know, it's interesting. A friend of mine actually said, when I got to the point where I said, gosh, this is really, uh, like, I'm really anxious. She said to me, and I said, but you know, I think she can change. It's just all of these things, right? Series of terrible events. And she said to me, I want you to keep a calendar Mm, and keep, yeah, keep a calendar. She's a therapist. And she said, keep a calendar. And what you should do is keep a record of good days versus bad days. So I actually had some tangible data. And in the beginning, you know, we were at like a 30 to 40% of the days were just, you know, we're in a snit, things got bad, you know, things, you know, they were not good days. Toward the end, we were at 80% bad days. And the bad days were so much worse than the bad days before. So not only are we 
at an increased percentage of the time, but we're at an increase in like, you know, terrible incidents throughout the day. Hello, you are listening to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder president of Finding Our Voices, which you can find at findingourvoices.net. Let's return now to my conversation with Tiffany of the Portland area about her abusive first lesbian relationship. And tell me how, how you changed. So this is the worst part, Patricia. I was, I avoided things, right? So, you know, at some point we went on vacation and we went on vacation with some family friends of mine. And the person that we were with, you know, she said to me, she said, you know, are you okay? Are you all right? And I would do things like, one of the worst, one of the, one of the things I, I think about is um, we were actually on a cruise and we were on a cruise. It's a really long story, but um, we we're on a cruise with my son's brother and his family, which, you know, because of, you know, adoption, international adoption. So we were on a cruise and these boys, it was their first vacation together as brothers, you know, and she said to me at one, one night, she said to me, I just need some time with the three of us. And I said, you know, I, we're not here for that. We have so much time with the three of us. We're here so they could have a night. And she said, you know, well, he needs a night too and all of these things. And so I would do things to accommodate her and just to keep the peace because we were on vacation, right? And I couldn't escape her. You're in a cabin and, a, you know, on a cruise ship. And I said to the other family, like, hey, you know, we're going to take a night, just the three of us. And that's not me. I never would have done that. And they were so sad. And the brother was so sad. And it just made no sense to do that. And, and I would start to that, do things. That reminds me, we used to belong to this private club in New York City. And I had uh -huh. this friend who was my childhood friend from the time I was like eight. And she was married to, she married to this guy, Marty. He's a great guy. So... I invited them to have dinner with us in New York because they lived in New York at the club. And then leading up to it, my ex was in a snit, you know, over the fact that they were going to be there and he didn't want this, the husband to be there who had never done anything wrong to him. I called my friend and said, your husband can't come. Like that is so unlikely. And what an insult. <laughs> so absurd, right? What an insult to this guy. Like your husband can't come to dinner. Are you kidding me? But I did it. And I, there was no question about it. Like I had to do it. So isn't that weird how you, you just do things like that are, that, that hurt, that hurt my friend's feelings that hurt his feelings, but it didn't matter. Like at all costs, you have to avoid confrontation with this person. Yeah. And that's exactly what I, what I would do at, at all costs, at any cost. And I would do things, you know, like I would, I remember one time, you know, we were at um, like a math meet or an Odyssey of the Mind meet or something. And she would choose these times that were like fairly public and would mm. just to say these terrible things to me. And I could never understand it. It would make me cry. And I would do things like would have to go to the car and, you know, like I, we're with like the school community. I'm, I'm the room parent and I am not, in the room I am not in the because I had to go to the car because I was crying because she would just do to her terrible the things timing. and then she would say to me the timing always. the timing was very interesting it was always at a time like the worst time or the time you know right like the time that was humiliating most most humiliating or most inconvenient for you or always it was always the most inconvenient or humiliating or um just times that they were supposed to be special and she would do things like remember one time we were pulling into like the Grand Cayman Islands on a cruise and she was like what would it look like if I just pushed you off this boat 
and you got eaten in front of your son. And, you know, and that was because that was because we have an agreement. And for my son's, you know, um, my son at the time, whenever he was with one parent, he always at the time called the other parent twice a day. And it was just what we did. And it was for his best interest, you know, and he, he would call and just say, Hey, I love you. Good morning. And Hey, I love you. Good night. And that sort of thing. And he called and he called on vacation. And why, why does he have to call on vacation? And I said, you know, he doesn't have, he doesn't stop having another parent just because we're on vacation. You know, he, he still is going to call just, you know, and it was that, and it was just, you know, I'd like to just watch you get ripped to shreds. You're not even a good mother anyway. And did you, cause I'm, I'm relating to this. Did you just try to block it out because that was yep. the best thing to rather than respond. The best thing is just pretend, pretend she didn't say it. Right. Pretend she didn't say it. I always had sunglasses on and there's a photo taken about maybe 10 minutes after she said that. And I'm a mess. I'm a mess. And the photo is of the three of us and I'm smiling and nobody would know. Nobody would know that she just did these like terrible things, you know, and would do things like grab my phone so my son couldn't call and that I'm going to have to hear it on the other end. And I'm not going to like do what is A, in our custody agreement and is in the most importantly, the best interest of my kid um, is nobody would know. And so there are these, you know, yeah, I would just block it, block it right out. Did you uh, change the way you looked, dressed, uh, things like that for her? Um, I would do things like dress very like monotone um, or monochrome. Um, so I didn't want patterns. I didn't want, I just didn't want to be seen. Um, I think you asked me like, do you wear black a lot? And it just occurred to me that I... I didn't want to be seen. And I don't, I don't remember her saying like, Hey, I want you to be dressed differently, but she would do things like, you know, I had recently lost some weight. Um, and she would do things like, Oh, what are you going to be on the market now? Now that you're out, are you just going to be looking for other women? And, you know, so you, were, would, you were trying to shrink yourself and minimize yourself probably in order to avoid completely, her. completely. I didn't want to do anything like, you know, like, if I tried a new makeup or something, I was always going to be, well, it's just, you, you want to be with other women. Now that you, now that you know what it's like, I'm not going to be enough for you, you know? And I, A, like, that's not my style. I never would have like been unfaithful and be like, I didn't have any time. Like I was working around the clock and taking care of my kid, you know, but she would just say, yeah, I would just change everything because or like if we would like be amongst like her friends or my friends as well, were you looking at her? Did you see her looking at you, you know? And so I would just not, I just, I'm very social. I'm very outgoing. And I just wouldn't, I just wanted to avoid conflict. So I just wouldn't talk to anybody. And tell me about the, um, the gay, gay community. Uh, did that play a part in it? Or was that, is there, was there anything to say about that? Yeah, um, it's actually played a huge part in it. So, you know, um, we live in Maine. Maine is really small, right? Um, the gay and lesbian community in Maine is even smaller. Is that right? Um, so, yes. And so it's always, you know, it's it's difficult to, even as somebody who's newly in this community, you know, um, it's difficult to date somebody that hasn't dated somebody that you know. Even, and, even, even like outside of your area? 
Um, or more in your area, like more Southern Maine. You're talking more about. Southern, Southern Maine, Southern yeah. Maine. Um, and so, you know, she knew more people in the gay community than I did just because she had been, you know, she'd been out longer. She had been, you know, gay longer and or identifying as gay longer. And so, you know, it would do things, she would do things and she was right in some things, you know, when I would start to leave, like, you're going to have no community left. You're going to have no community left. I'm going to turn all of these people against you. Um, you know, and so at least initially in, in like when, before I was, you know, before it was evident that I was, I was likely to leave, um, she would do things, you know, so, oh, well, you know, we're not going to hang out with, she would say things, you know, we're not going to hang out with the gay people because you're fresh meat. As a kid growing up, like my music taste, my, all of these things, Tiffany, you didn't realize that you were supposed to, you wouldn't realize you were a lesbian. Like, like what other teenage girl is listening to Melissa Etheridge in the 1990s? And yeah, I wanted to, to be amongst people that just got it and that I could relate to in that manner. And you know, she would say other than like her closest friends um, that were in the community, she and even then, if there was somebody that was more like masculine presenting, um, you know, somebody that I may or may not be that, that I would more likely to be attracted to. So I'm not likely to be attracted to another like feminine presenting woman. Um, she would do things like, oh, well, were you looking at her? She was looking at you like we're not hanging out with them again. Were you worried that she was going to turn the gay community against you? Was that part of why you didn't, may have not left earlier? I was afraid that she would turn not only the gay community against me, but my work community and other people that, you know, other friends and families. It was all of my communities. It was literally all of them. Um, and these are things that she did. You know, these are things that she did. She went on a campaign after we broke up to turn my own family she was text messaging my parents you know she was well let's back up a little bit so tell me yeah. the lowest point in the relationship and how you got out so there were two incidents that were just the the, the lowest um the first one just was, was between me and with her and I was working I had I worked in the hospital and I was working until 11 30 that night so I got home and it was like 11 45 at night and she met me at the door and she said, you know, I know you weren't at work. And, you know, I said, okay, this is ridiculous. You know, I was at work. I literally called you from there. You work in the same place and you passed me in the hallway at the beginning of my shift. Like, like, this is absurd. You know, I was there. I'm tired. I have to also work at 7 a.m., which is in like, you know, seven and a half hours. Let's just, you know. And she had a half gallon mason jar full of water. And it's like early December. It's cold. It's 1130 at night. And she threw the entire thing on me. So I'm soaked. I'm drenched. So she eventually lets me in the house. I'm cold. I'm tired. I'm wet. And she makes this big, this, this big event of warming me up. She had heated like a blanket. She had a change of clothes for me a hairdryer, a heated blanket plugged in, like one of those electric blankets. And she just, I'm so sorry. Like, I love you. Let me take care of you. And I, I actually had the nerve to say to her, I wouldn't need to be taken care of right now if you hadn't just done this. I want to go to sleep. At this point, it's like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. I just want to go to bed. I have to work at 7. 
And so she went upstairs, but she's really angry that I had rejected her advances to take care of me. Um, so she went upstairs and just as I was falling asleep, I heard the stairs creak. That, I know that sound, like I still hate that sound. I heard the stairs creak. She came down, she turned the lights on. She cornered me, I'm in the couch. I'm like, like almost like I'm like just trying to make myself, I'm almost like in the fetal position in like in the corner of this L-shaped couch. And she stood over me and had her, like she was posturing, like she was going to, to punch me. And she said, I'd just love to knock you out right now. It was really progressing. And um, there was another one in which she involved my son in the fight to the point where my son then cried. And, and I said, do you want to go to dad's house? And he said, I, I don't want to go to dad's house because if I leave, I'm afraid she might hurt you. Um, how old was you he? know like 11 oh, 11 incredible. you know and I just at that point I just remember saying like okay this is like you can and I've always been this way you can mess with me as much as you want but you do not I didn't realize how much it was impacting him and so a couple days later, um, it was Christmas Day. She made wow. him cry again. Not, not easy to do something uh-huh. like that at Christmas Day, you know? Exactly. It's Christmas Day. She made him cry again. She, I took the dogs for a walk before we opened gifts. And I apparently took too long in walking the dogs because I had to walk them separately because they pulled. And, you know, it, God forbid she helped me with one of them. Um, but I had to walk them. And I apparently took too long. And what was I doing? And I said, my phone was here. Like I'm visible at all areas. Like, what do you think I was doing? And um, so she yelled at me and she threw a, like one of those like stainless steel um, frying pans at the counter, um, just narrowly missing me. I think I had like balsamic vinegar on me from the night before, you know, and um my son was crying on Christmas day. And that was the day that night I said, you know, we're done here. We are done here and you need to leave. So I had moved out um, and had gotten established, got an apartment for me and my son and dog and, you know, was starting to like move on with my life. Um, So we're talking like at this point, five, six months later. And she had always been contacting me and I would do things like block her number, but then she would email me via another, like an altered email that I hadn't blocked. Um, Or she would do things like, oh, I really need to talk to you about, you know, the dog or whatever. And so I would kind of be like, okay, what do you need today? You know, and I think that that strung her along enough, you know, when I would give her some attention. When I finally was like, hey, I'm going to begin dating again. You know, it's been months and I'm finally at a spot where I'm happy my son said to me, like, I forgot what your laugh sounded like, mommy. So when I began dating, um, and it was clear to her that I had really moved on, um, she began following me. She came to my work one day. I was nannying. And she came one day to the playground at a school. It was very creepy. We can be together. You know, I know you want me. I know you need me. You've been sending me signals. And I would say, you know, I have not sent you one. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what signals you're speaking about. I haven't sent you any signals. Like, you know, please leave. Like, leave me alone. And so I called the police that night. 
or that afternoon. And I went down to the police station and I said, she's following me at work now. Like, you know, she would do things like text me and, you know, she, I, she'd all of a sudden show up where I was, but now it's at work and there are children involved and that's, this is not safe. This is a school. And, um, so what we decided to do that night, the police officer and I is he issued a no contact order. So it wasn't quite a restraining order yet. Um, but it was a no contact order. So he went to her house, um, and said, you may not contact her anymore. Stop it. Stop. And he didn't, he left the, he, he called me as he was leaving the driveway and I got like, you know, the beep, like the call waiting beep as he was leaving. He said, I'm pulling out right now. And I said, hang on. I said, she's calling me. She's calling me. You're in the driveway and she's calling me. Um, right so, after he had said, no, you're not allowed to contact her. She called you. She called me. Um, then about maybe 15 minutes later, my mother called me and she said, you know, what's going on? Just called me and, you know, said that that you needed some help and you need. And it's like, I like, no, like things are fine. And she said, oh, well, she also invited dad to go fishing with her. <laughs> like, no, no. Um, Around that same time, she was being evicted from the place that we rented together because she had not in, I think, six months paid a dime of rent. She owed thousands upon thousands of dollars. So she got a new place to live. She didn't have the money to pay the upfront costs, you know, the security deposits and first month's rent and all of that. So she had convinced a friend of mine from the international adoption community that I'm very heavily involved in to help front those initial costs. Um, he, it was mutually beneficial because he needed a, um, a Portland address for something. And she told him that we were getting back together and she showed him um, what was going to be apparently my son's bedroom. And in included like she'd put like things that I'd left there, like his bedspread and stuff. And said, yep, Tiffany's coming back. We're going to live here and this is going to be his bedroom. And, you know, it's so nice to finally be a family again. She then began sending me emails. You have about two minutes to agree to come back to me or else I'm going to, to contact the, the person, the, my now wife, but I began, be, just begun seeing her. I'm going to contact her and tell her that we're still together and I can produce evidence. So I went to the courthouse and filled out the um, the application for a restraining order. She kept violating the, the restraining order. And I would go to the police and I would present evidence, a note, a physical note left on my car. Like, I, this is this is tangible evidence. This is not, you know, my kid saw her. He did see her. And they're not, you know? not allowed contact. That's what you're not allowed about. contact even like third party, like she right, contacted, right, right. She, she invited my dad fishing again. She contacted my ex-husband and apologized for all of the things that had happened between them and asked to have dinner. She contacted his now wife and was saying, you know, well, yes, Tiffany was cheating on him the whole time, you know? And of course, like, like nobody believes these things, but like just anything she could do to assassinate my character. So what um, happened with the, with the, with the note on the windshield? What did the police say? Um, so they basically, um, there was actual footage 
of the note being left, there was camera footage because I contacted the business and they, you know, were like they were able to, and essentially it was, they just, they weren't going to be bothered. They, they said, no, you know, there was no footage. And I was like, there is footage because I contacted the business and um, they reviewed it and they saw it and there's footage. You don't want to find it. Um, and it was just a lot of like, they just weren't taking me seriously. And they, they, at one point, one of the officers said like, you know, like, what are you afraid she's going to come beat you up? And, and I said, you know, yeah, I'm afraid that she could come beat me up and more, you know? And he, he said, you know, how much bigger than you is she? And I just thought like, oh my gosh, like, I can present any amount of evidence I want to this particular police department and they're not going to take me seriously. Mm. So at this point, my son, it was about a week after that, my son saw, he, he said, you know, I, I'm certain I saw her on my way to school. And I thought I saw her last week, but I wasn't sure. And I didn't want to upset you. And I didn't want to jump to conclusions. Um, but now that I've seen a second time, I, I have to tell you, right. And so I contacted the police department in my town and he said, yep. And I said, look, here's this from this other neighboring town. Here's another thing from a different neighboring town. Here is all of this cumulative evidence that nobody is taking seriously. And he reviewed it and he said, you know, I have enough to arrest her right now. It took me, it, it, and it took me really advocating. And I said, you know, here's, here's what I went through getting the restraining. Here's what I went through with this department earlier this year. This is what I went through with these other two police departments. And I, I'm really afraid, like this is escalating and I'm, I'm really afraid, you know, and, and that police uh, department arrest her. That, that's the one that finally did arrest her then. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, he called and said, you know, we, we, we placed her under arrest. I don't know that, you know, she was handcuffed and all that stuff, but it's the record says that she was arrested on my road, actually. <laughs> and was she, was she charged with something? Did, did it go to court? And was she charged? My understanding was that it went to court and the DA then dropped it. How did you feel about it being dropped? I, I was furious. I was, I just felt so invalidated because here is this person, there's physical evidence, there's evidence that you can place your hands on that she violated a restraining order there were phone logs that I presented there were email logs they, that I presented to anybody in the DA's office I called and I said you know I don't care if she gets in trouble or not I don't care what happens to her I need her to leave us alone and and the only thing that she responds to is consequences you don't you don't hold them accountable how is it going to change the behavior what did they tell you when you said that to them they apologized and they said, you know, we're really sorry. We know we are booked solid with this sort of thing. And she hasn't, essentially, she presents less of a risk in the court lobby. As we're waiting to go in in front of the judge, she stopped in front of me and said, are we really going to do this? And it, remember, there was a temporary order in place. She still was not able to do that. She did that. They didn't care. Let me ask you a question. So you go to all this effort and discomfort and it's very hard and you, you, you take out this restraining order on her. She violates it and there's no consequences. What's the point? I think that was the thing is, is to me, I said, what's the point? A judge granted a restraining order. A, a judge decided 
that this person was enough of a threat to give me, I asked for a six month order. They gave me a two year order. He said, no, trust us. You want this. Gave me a two year order. And then, and said to me, then said to me privately, I want you to document anything that happens because this is very easily going to be extended. I wish that I had maybe even further, you know, pushed, you know, and maybe made an appointment with the, with the DA's office. Yeah, um, I know, but you or, know what? I feel, I relate to that too, because through his whole, my ex's whole court process, you know, in the end, they gave him a plea deal and he got no consequences. And I, yeah. I beat myself up over it. And the same thing like you're saying right now, I was like, I should have, you know, been more forceful with the district attorney. I should have, I should have. I don't think it makes a difference. I really don't. Yeah. It's on us. We blame ourselves. We think it's because we didn't advocate enough for ourselves. I, I don't think so. I think it just doesn't make a difference. They're not going to do anything. And they want you to blame yourself because they don't want the blame on you, on them. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this, but they, uh, the district attorneys routinely malign victims of domestic abuse because whenever they're asked, you know, why don't you prosecute? Oh, well, the victim didn't want to testify. They always say that. It doesn't make a difference. It's not our fault. It's their fault. I cannot tell you how many times I called them. I emailed them. I, and I said, you know, I, at one point I said, I think you are looking at the wrong case. Like, like she was arrested. (laughs) There are these, you know, I mean, and, and it, it just didn't matter. It just didn't matter. And if it doesn't matter in a hetero relationship where there is, you know, a size difference, you know, like physics comes into play and all of these things, it certainly didn't matter in a lesbian relationship where it's very, very easy. And I'm so sure, and I've heard this, I'm so sure that it really was probably looked at as, you know, a lover's quarrel between two hysterical women. Is there any advice that you would give for any woman who is in a situation like you early on or something that you would like to pass yeah. on? Yeah. I would just say like trust your gut. Trust it because there are so many things that I just did it I just overlooked and I would also tell them to get out it's never going to get easier to get out. It's only going to get more challenging. So I would say to myself, well, as soon as I get this next bonus at work and I have a decent nest egg to place down on this or to have like something to fall back on, or as soon as my child gets through this holiday, or as soon as we, you know, um, it never gets easier. And then, you know, my kid cried on Christmas morning because I didn't get out sooner. You know, it's never going to get easier. It's never going to get less complicated. So as soon as you can safely do it, get out, put a plan in place. There are checklists. There are all kinds of things that are available to help with the getting out process. Utilize them. Get out. Thank you, Tiffany. And thank you for listening. To learn more about our Sisterhood of Survivors and how you can help break the silence, visit us at findingourvoices.net. And if you have questions or comments for me or Tiffany, feel free to get in touch with me, Patricia McLean, founder president of Finding Our Voices at hello at findingourvoices.net. And if what Tiffany and I talked about sounds familiar, if there is someone in your life controlling you and making you afraid, say something. There are domestic abuse agencies all over the country with advocates on call who believe you and understand it. 
The 24-7 hotline in Maine is through the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence, and the number is 1-866-834-4357. Our website at findingourvoices.net is another good resource, featuring 34 women who have been there and gotten out, and you can hear each of our stories by clicking onto our photograph. And until next time, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time. It's been a long